Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that uses musical memories as a means of getting to know our guests. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Shauna Caspi. Shauna is a Toronto-based singer-songwriter who's doing a swing through Florida to play a few gigs, including tonight in Fort Myers at the Americana Community Music Association's Listening Room. Tonight will be her first live performance after taking some time away from the road to write and attend the Banff Center's Singer-Songwriter Residency in Alberta. Her poetic bio describes her as a, quote, mighty singer, a fingerstyle guitarist, a story sculptor, and a truth teller, end quote. It goes on to say she believes in poetry and the power of one person and one instrument, accompanying herself with a remarkable lyrical finger-picking guitar style that maybe we'll hear some of later. She says she loves the landscapes of her travels, weaving them into her songs, and that she also portrays them on canvases as a painter. Her fourth album, Forest Fire, is described as a collection of songs about burning things down and building them up again. She says when the words get heavy, they are held up to the light of love and gratitude. Remember when I said poetic? Shauna's brief bio ends by saying she strives to be unafraid, to embolden quieted voices, and to tell the truth above all else. Sounds like a perfect Three Song Stories guest to me, so let's get right to the truth-telling. Are you nervous? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) truth-telling. So how did you get hooked up with the Americana people? I mean, have you been here before? I haven't been to this part of Florida at all before, but I've toured in Florida for the past two years, about around this time of year, and I've been to all other parts of the state, uh, more or less. And I've been trying to get in touch with the people from the ACMA listening room for a couple of years, and it just hasn't gelled. And then finally this year, the scheduling worked, so I'm really looking forward to Did it. Did you just roll right into town? So, like, you've seen nothing but, like, I-75 I and then the in. interchange and then the, the university. I stopped to say hello to the alligators down at the southern point there, and then I just kept going. Okay, cool. Um, and then you're playing two more gigs on back on the other coast? Yeah, that's right, closer to Miami. Okay. Um, what was the musical background of your childhood? Um, it was a very classical music-based childhood. My uh, my parents didn't have a whole lot of their old records from their childhood uh, because they had moved around quite a bit, so they couldn't carry them with them. So I wasn't brought up like on pop music of you know the sixties and seventies. Mm. I was mostly brought up on classical music, and um, and I started my music education quite young, learning piano and then singing. And so that's all. where it started was keyboard? Yeah, which it's it's funny that we're talking about this today because it was just recently World Piano Day. Hmm. And I was thinking back to my piano education and uh, and what a great instrument that is to have kids play mm-hmm. because when you hit the key, it makes the sound exactly. of the note. Exactly. There's no, yeah, no it, hurdle no, to cross yeah. with dexterity or anything or like that. Or trying to blow into a wind instrument yeah. or something. And and, um, and it's also the kind of instrument that when you're just starting to play it, it still sounds fairly pleasing. You know, right, I, feel, right. I really feel for those those violin parents. <laughs> Do you those... play still to this day? I I play kind of for fun, but I really only use the piano now as a tool to work out melodies and to learn vocal parts and stuff like that. Were your parents mindfully exposing you to classical music or was that just kind of what they listened to and it was what was around? I think it was my dad mostly listened to it. So we had classical music records in the house and we had 
um, classical tapes in the car. So a lot of the music I was hearing was when, when I was driving in the car with my dad. Any radio listening? Was there classical music being played on Canadian broadcasting? I think the radio that was on in our house at the time, the radio station was this local oldies station. Oh. So sometimes we would hear oldies music, but then that station flipped over and became one of those really obnoxious talk radio stations. So it was the end of that. So you guys have those up there too. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's the earliest musical memory you can recall? Um, probably lullabies or um, – or l- my parents used to put on a cassette tape of uh, Sesame Street kind of songs as I would go to sleep. So I remember that. I remember the Sesame Street songs and I remember the Raffi songs. Those were really big when I was <laughs> I remember, a kid. Oh, Raffi. There's a name I yeah, haven't thought of Yeah, he's one of ours in Canada. Oh, is he, is he one of yours? Yeah. Okay, that makes – oh, now that I know that, that makes perfect sense. He's a superstar. <laughs> we love him. Yeah, he's from Canada. Um, uh, can you remember a time when music moved you when you were a kid or even maybe into your teens or something, just when music, a song for some reason resonated with you emotionally or – Um, I think probably once I started singing, I was in a lot of choirs when I was young and and I was in a children's choir. I grew up in Ottawa, Ontario, and our children's choir used to get hired to do any kind of, you know, professional event where they needed a children's choir. And one year we got to be the choir in the St. Matthew Passion for Easter, which was all very new to me. I didn't really know what that was at the time, but... Um, you know, we had to learn German and, and we were on stage at this major art center and just singing and we had a, a very famous uh, conductor and just that whole production and singing together as a choir. There's something that happens to people in the way that they interact with each other when they're in a choir. And I think that I, – I do remember that as being very moving. So was there anything in between piano and guitar? Um, I I had to learn how to play the violin when I was in middle school. Our middle school had an orchestra rather than a band like some schools did. And so I did learn violin, and that is a difficult instrument to learn and a, a painful instrument to learn. Not like the piano. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I liked it a lot, and so I, I learned it, and I wasn't very good at it, and then I actually picked it up again just for fun when I was in high school and in university and played a little bit. By then I was really into folk music, so I, I liked it as a fiddle, and I was learning Celtic music on that violin. But, uh, but yeah, I did learn that as a kid for a little bit. So when did, when did the guitar first hit your hands? I learned the guitar, uh, I think, on a whim. After I had played piano for a while, I ended up quitting, which I think was a great step because I got to the point where I really did not like the formal lessons anymore. Like it made me really mad and angry. And it made me hate the piano. And so I'm really glad that I quit when I did because I came to love the piano again. And so after that, when I wasn't taking lessons in an instrument, I was uh, training as a, as a singer. And then I guess I don't know how it happened, but there were these extracurricular classes you could take through the Board of Education when I was in high school. And we just were kind of – me and my parents were just sort of rifling through them and saw a guitar and bought a really cheap classical guitar and it was a group lesson, so I went to this group lesson. There's not a lot that you can really do in a group lesson. Yeah. So for that first year, I just learned a couple of chords. You know, that was cool. And then I liked it and wanted to keep going. And so my parents found me a private teacher, which is a lot better and, and more efficient as a lesson. And it just happened to be that my private teacher was a classical guitar player. And so I had been playing with a pick, as many people do when you play guitar. 
and she played with her fingernails, and that was new to me. So I learned classical guitar from her and did that for six years, and so then I got that technique and that um, and the theory and everything that goes with classical guitar, and that was a really great foundation for me. Hmm. When when, uh, when did then folk music come around instead of classical music? Was that like an epiphany or a slow <laughs> roll? Well, growing up in Ottawa at the time, we had a really amazing folk music scene because we had a music store called the Ottawa Folklore Center. We had a great folk festival and we had a folk club and we had uh, a radio station at Carleton University called CKCU. And all that together was like the cornerstones of the folk music scene in Ottawa and it was really strong. And I think I just went to Rasputin's Cafe one night to see a friend play and and found out that they had an open mic and I was kind of writing songs at the time, but I didn't really know where to go find folk music. It wasn't in my house and I didn't really know anyone who was doing it. But through those avenues, I found out that this was something that existed. And then when I went to the folk festival... I think I probably went to see some artists that I knew and was opened to all these other artists that I had never heard of before. And that's a great thing about festivals. That's what it does. Right. But it and, all came on in an onslaught then. You hadn't yeah. really been percolating in the folk. It was just boom, there it is. Yeah. And and I think I just um, – I, I just really loved songwriting and original music and music with a story. And when I found out that this was something that people actually did <laughs> – and, you know, I could go out there and by going to see one artist, I was introduced to a whole bunch of artists. I think that's what really did it. Hmm. We'll get a little bit further into that later, but let's get on to your first song. Uh, what is it and why is it? Uh, we're going to start with the classical background that I was talking about. And I've chosen uh, for release, Beethoven. And that's because it's really the first song that I can remember being my favorite song. Hmm. And I used to ask for it all the time. And we had a tape of it, so my dad would play it in the car, and he was very nice to do that whenever I asked to play it. And then um, me and my brother were both learning piano, but my brother was older than me, so he was more skilled at the piano than I was. And I remember having the sheet music for Furry Lees just sitting on our piano, and my brother was learning how to play it, but I wasn't good enough yet to know how to play it. But I learned maybe the first four to six bars of it, maybe just in the right hand. And I just really worked really hard on that as a kid. And how old it. would you have been at this point? I don't know, maybe six or seven. Okay, little, yeah. Yeah, just, sorry, just a little tiny bit of it. And it made me so happy to know that I could play the beginning of that song. All right, you want to listen to it? Sure. Okay. This uh, Fur Lease by Ludwig van Beethoven, which according to Wikipedia... This was not published in his lifetime. Somebody discovered this 40 years after he died, and then now we all get to enjoy it.
When was the last time you listened to it? I can't even remember. I don't even think that would have been one of my university music school assignments or anything. I probably haven't listened to it since I was a kid. Hmm. Did you ever learn to play it like proper? No, I never learned the whole thing. It's quite tough to play. You got to be a really good piano I player. I figure. Uh, what about on the on the guitar? I mean, no. It seems like <laughs> you come up with some sort of you know rendition of it or version of it or something. I think I once played. Uh, Packabell's Canon on the oh, guitar, yeah, yeah and classical guitar. <laughs> well, that was our first Beethoven. It took us sixty <laughs> episodes to get to Beethoven. So, uh, do you do you remember the first music you owned? Yes. Well, I remember the first music that I bought with my own money. That works. So um, it was in the days of CDs uh, by then, and it was Tom Cochran's Ragged Ass Road. All right. And I still have it, and I <laughs> why? still love Tom Cochran. I mean, I, I, I'm not, that is not a judgment why. That is just a what was your you know, I rationale. I think I loved and still love Life is a Highway. That song is an amazing song, and I will fight that to the death. You ever rock? out to it down the Yes. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll, if I don't have a CD player in my rental car and I'm just listening to the radio, it's amazing how many radio stations will play Life is a Highway at any given time. Uh, okay, rental car. Your bio talks about how you had never even rented a car or gone on any travels or done anything like <laughs> done that. Done good until, research. <laughs> well, it's right there on your well-written website. So, um, yes. um, so, so t- take us back to the, the where we were in terms of, okay, wow, there's the folk world, to I'm touring around playing my own music in front oh of goodness. people. I know um, that's probably a long bridge, but, you know. Well, it's a great question because um, I remember – being again, folk festivals when I was in high school were really big, a big memory for me, and, and just a wonderful space. And I remember going to them because the one in Ottawa would be at the end of the summer, and I would go and I would just be elated, and I would watch all these incredible performers, and then think, oh, I got to go back to school tomorrow, and all of these cool people are going on the road. And yeah, they're, they're going to the music. next festival. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, how do you do that? And I just didn't think it was anything that mortals could do and certainly nothing that I could do. Even, you know, I was I was a, a student at an arts high school, so I was studying music. I went to study music at university and really never had anything else in my life except music, but but never thought that I could be a touring folk singer. Isn't that kind of weird, though, in retrospect? <laughs> <laughs> just I couldn't figure out how that worked. And so for me, that happened very gradually in that uh, I went to university, I graduated, I got a day job in the arts, and then I I lived in Toronto by then, and Toronto's got a lot of musicians living there, so I became part of the Toronto music scene. And even though I was really only playing fairly locally, I met so many people that as my network expanded, I could start seeing people and knowing people that were doing this thing that I wanted to do. And they were the people who were telling me step by step how to get there. And it was very gradual. I was working full time and then I was working part time and then I was working less than part time and then slowly tapering off these day jobs I was doing and increasing the amount of touring and the distance of touring that I was doing. You studied singing, you studied music, you learned the guitar. What about the writing thing? Where did that come from? Did you did you somebody teach you to do that? Is that just you always have had a poetic nature? Uh, the songwriting I think came from listening to a lot of songwriters. I, I did take creative writing in high school, and um, and I've always really been interested in words. I love playing with words. I love writing. Um, but I think it was. I mean. 
at that point when I was in high school and I was discovering folk music and songwriters, I was a really huge Sarah McLaughlin fan. And at, that was the part in the 90s where female singer-songwriters were becoming part of pop music for the first time in a long time. And you could, I could turn on pop radio and hear them and, and think that's a woman singing a song that she wrote about, you know, something that she thinks is important. And that was really inspiring for me to do the same thing. Hmm. Um, uh, where does music fit into your life in general these days in terms of your listening behavior, not your making of music? Do you have it on your phone? Do you stream? Do you have CDs still? <laughs> um, this is going to sound terrible, but... I think I actually listen to more podcasts, yeah. uh, like talk podcasts and storytelling podcasts, quite honestly, than I do music these days. Um, that but, makes two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the way that I see it is really I'm, I'm so immersed in music constantly and I'm making it all the time and I'm playing it all the time that when I have downtime, I just don't want to listen to music. Right. I just want some peace and, uh, and I just want to hear something else. Uh, do you remember the last time you bought music that had a physical form, like a CD? Um, it's been a while. Uh, I do still have CDs in my collection, but uh, I, what I do remember is the last time that I can remember purchasing music from somebody who had a new release, I actually consciously purchased the digital tracks, right. which I – hadn't really done. That was like a first? Yeah. And because I, I love CDs, but I don't have anywhere to put them anymore. I do still have a couple of things that play CDs, but I just don't have the space for them. So I said, okay, I'm going to buy the digital tracks. And I did. And I didn't listen to them for probably about three or four months hmm. because I couldn't see them. Yeah. They were just these they tracks. Were out, they were out of sight, out of out of ear. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it was somebody's new release that I really did want to listen to, I I didn't well, click on them and I didn't put them on my phone. There. Yeah, and I think part of it is that my phone isn't compatible with my computer, so it's a whole process to transfer it. And I'm thinking that if we ever get the technology where we're just going to beam the tracks to each other on our phones, like everything's somehow, you know, not Apple and Android anymore. Well, I was going to say, if you stick away from Apple, <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, so, so there was a conflict there. And then finally, I, I put them on my phone and I listened to them like on an airplane and I sent a message to the artist and I was like, it's taken me four months to listen to your record, but I love it. <laughs> uh, karaoke. Do you do karaoke? And if so, like what would be a song we might hear you doing at karaoke? <laughs> Um, when I was a kid and I, and I was first introduced to karaoke at a party, it became my favorite thing. Okay. And okay. I had it. I had it for my birthday Fully party one year. Of like I just wanted it all the time. And this was before YouTube and the internet. So it's not like I could have my own karaoke party. You had, you had to, to like, hire, hire a guy. A dude, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so into it as a kid. Um, but as an adult, I, I'm not, not interested at all. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, again, I think it's I'm in music so much that it's, not even it's, like you know. I don't really want to hear. And you wound up at a bar. You I don't want to be singing on my day off, and I don't want to hear amateurs <laughs> singing what, on my day okay, off. Okay, what about dancing? Are you a dancer? Um, I I like dancing. I'm not a particularly good dancer, so I I wouldn't say that I do dance uh, a lot. Um, I, it was was something I used to take as a as a young person. Oh, so I took dance classes. Yeah. 
um, and I enjoy that quite a bit. Um, I'm a really big fan, though, of the slow dance, and I have to say that as an adult, I don't get to do that enough. Hmm. I would like more slow dances. I was going to say, where do you slow dance besides a wedding? I know. There should be more. Like ballroom dancing yeah, classes? Uh, yeah, I guess ballroom dancing uh, classes. It's a little too, too like, tight, you know, so and too, too regimented. Uh, yeah. Like, I just want to slow dance, like, in high school. Like... Just circle. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. I love that answer. Uh, live music. Uh, like pr- you said, you love the folk scene, the, the folk festivals. Do you have a, like a peak live who you saw, who you saw it with, where you saw it, something like that? Um, wow. Off the top of my head, uh, one that really stands out for me and, and that has for many years, I saw Dar Williams um, when I was in high school in Ottawa. She was playing a solo show at the National Library and the reason it stands out to me is because it was just her and the guitar on stage for however long, two hours of the show. It was so engaging. It was so dynamic. And it's what I go back to when I try to remember that that is a valid performance. Because I find a lot now, especially in the folk scene, people want something bigger or they want something with a quirk or whatever. And it's like one person and one guitar is an incredible show. And can be an incredible show. So that would be it. Yeah, that one really stands out to me. Okay, uh, it's time for song number two. Who? Okay. Who is who? Sarah, Sarah Mc. What's her name? Sarah McLaughlin. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who you know in Florida. <laughs> well, she was big enough that, that oh, she good. was everywhere. Oh, and by the way, okay, you're from Canada. Uh, in Florida, here, I've been listening to Moxie Fruva since 1992. So just FYI, I've got some Canadian music. Roots. <laughs> yeah, I've worked with some of the guys from Moxie Fruvis on a couple of my records. Oh, yeah, Dave, Mike. Dave just played on my most recent record, and Murray. You're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. Murray played friend on my second mine, record. A friend of mine uh, used to have a bong named Murray Ford. <laughs> <laughs> or Foster, sorry. Do, do, you think, do you think you could give Dave this podcast? Well, we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that later. Yeah, no, I, I worked at a music store in Gainesville in 1991, and I wound up with a advanced promo copy of this weird album, <laughs> and I didn't listen to grunge in the 90s because they got a hold of me. So anyway, back to your second song, Sarah McLaughlin. What is it? Uh, yeah, so this song is, is Hold On from her album Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, and which is I think is her best album. And it came out when I was in high school, but I didn't know about it. And I was a counselor in training at a summer camp that year. So I was taking care of kids, but I wasn't like an official counselor yet. I was still pretty young. And we had taken the kids to the drama class, and we were all lying on the floor, as you do in drama class with your eyes closed. And the facilitator was playing this song and said that it was her favorite album, and she said who it was, and and that that woman was you know older than me, and she was in high school, and and I just thought she was so cool. She was the drama teacher, and I think she actually went to the high school that I ended up going to, and I loved the song, but it wasn't a time in my life where I would have bought a CD based on one song that I loved, but I just assumed that because she was cool and I liked her that I should buy that album. Right. Yeah. So sight unseen, didn't know the other songs, didn't know who Sarah McLaughlin was. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. I went and bought Fell Me Towards Ecstasy and proclaimed to the world that I was a fan of this artist <laughs> and listened to the record and was blown away. And then her 
next album was surfacing, and then that was when the whole Lilith Fair thing came out, mm-hmm. and when this this female in female singer songwriters in pop music thing happened, and and to this day, I'm so amazed by Lilith Fair and what that was, and that was 20 years ago, and we are now still fighting about gender parity in festivals. And people are saying that women don't sell enough tickets and all those kinds of, you know, all those things. And it's like, we did this already. We did it 20 years ago. It was hugely successful. And and so I always point to her for, for what an initiative that was and how incredible that was. Hmm. Well, let's listen to it then. Uh, Hold On by Sarah McLaugh- McLaughlin. McLaughlin from her uh, 1993 album Fumbling Towards Ecstasy. What's that make you feel? Oh, man, she's just still got that unbelievable voice and i used to play that song with my friends at lunch hour in the practice rooms all the time <laughs> sing al- singing along oh yeah um uh, is she still actively making music oh yeah she actually just hosted the juno awards which okay. is canada's version of the I've grammys heard, i've heard of it <laughs> it's a pretty big deal in canada <laughs> uh, so she's the host and she is still making new music and she just she's still got that voice have you seen her live i haven't seen her live since I don't know, probably the early 2000s, but I have several times. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Um, you mentioned before that, that you had collaborated with some of the guys from Oxyfruvis. You say you're a soloist. Is that because on your albums, was it production help? Were they playing? Explain just when you're not playing alone or what that collaboration is like. Sure. Yeah. So most of the time I am alone. I, I write alone. I tour alone. I play live alone usually. But when I make a record, often I'll get session players to come in and play music, and I just love playing with other people. Um, I have four albums, and three of them have uh, other musicians and bigger arrangements of songs on them. So, uh, again, living in Toronto, I've made all my records in Toronto, and we're just full of musicians, so there's lots of people to choose from. But it's something I wish I could do more of. And when I put out my last record, I did a CD release in Toronto with a full band for the first time. I'd never played live with a full band before. And I loved it, but I cannot figure out uh, how to do it in a fiscally responsible way for myself. <laughs> fiscally beneficial way. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could. Hmm. Do you remember your first gig? Like first, I like somebody do. gave you some money to, to play for them? Um, I I, where I actually made money, yeah. I think it was at Rasputin's Cafe. I've mentioned that place a couple times already. I also worked there for a year when I was in high school. Uh, but I think my first paying gig was there, and it was me, um, a woman named Michelle, who was a singer-songwriter from Toronto. And I don't know if you guys know her, but Lindy, um, she lives in Nashville now, and it's become quite a one name person. Yeah, quite a okay. famous sort of country artist. But at the time, she was just like I am now, you know, driving around playing songs. Lindy, and you got anything on Lindy, Richard? L i n d i. Not even Richard. He's, he's way more. Big, yeah. <laughs> or she might have done some stuff, but you don't know her name. But she's like raking in the dollars, I'm sure, in Nashville now. Cool. <laughs> um, uh, uh, how long's your new newest album been out? Almost two years now, which sounds like an eternity to Do me. Do you have more, more like songs being written and you know worked on? No well, pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been on the road promoting that album pretty much until right now, and then after now, I will after this tour in Florida, I'm going to have a, a bunch of time off. But I'm not one of those people who can write on the road. So when I'm on the road, I'm I'm so focused on that that I just can't write. And you mentioned at the top of the show that I just came back from the Banff Center. That in was Alberta. my next question. Thank you. What <laughs> was that all segment? about? Yes, yes. Um, 
so I just went to the Banff Center in Alberta, and it's a, a just utopian place where, in in this case, I was there for three weeks at a singer-songwriter residency. So they gave all – there were 30 of us. We each got our own little hut that we could write in any time of the day or night. We had workshops. We were learning from some of the greatest songwriters in North America. David Francie was there. Uh, Kevin Welch was there. Kim Ritchie was there. And um, – and that was like the first time that I had to actually focus only on songwriting. You know, people give you food and make your bed and uh-huh. it's like this whole thing. And It's like the land of beautiful <laughs> art. And, and I'm not recovered from it yet. Like I was you're thrown still, into this tour and I'm kind of still there. Now you're on the radio or whatever. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm still thinking about it. But it was it was so amazing. And I went there with two songs that I hadn't finished yet. And I finished those songs. And I wrote two brand new songs, mm. you know, all in the span of three weeks, which is very rare for me. So I'm really primed to be writing right now. Um, but I have to wait till I'm in that space. Right, right. I had a real quick aside. I got to go out um, on Captiva or Sanibel Island here in town. There's uh, Robert, Robert Rauschenberg was a very famous artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he owns a big property there and they have a residency now for artists. And I got to go out there one day with my camera because I'm a photographer and spend 10 hours Walking around and spending time with each of the individual artists in their little worlds and taking pictures of what they were doing. And then we all met for lunch and they fed them. And so I totally can picture now what it is you're talking about. And man, how did you get that? Is that something you had to apply for? Did they find you? Um, It was their third year. It's a fairly new program. And I had known musicians who've done it in past years. And actually, the reason I couldn't do it for the past two years was because I was touring in Florida both of those times. This time it worked out. And so I applied. Everyone has to apply and got in and... And the whole time I was terrified, I was sure that they had made a mistake or that I would go there and just look at a blank wall for three weeks and not do anything. Right. And I was imposter like, syndrome. Oh my gosh, the imposter syndrome <laughs> was so strong. And I and I was telling everyone how I felt and every single person in that program felt the exact same Absolutely. way. Of course they did, yeah. And uh, and so we were all just so amazed with how it went and, and uh, yeah, and I'm still having trouble articulating it so soon afterwards. Yeah. Well, that's a good <laughs> lesson though that everybody was on that same page. You know what yeah. I mean? Like every time you go up to that next echelon, it's still just a bunch of people trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, uh, painting. You're, yeah. A, you're a painter now? Yeah. What, 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 <laughs> That's is it, my reaction. <laughs> I'm a painter now? I mean, uh, like oil, acrylic. Uh, do you paint from photos? Like what's your uh, methodology? Yeah. So I learned how to paint in university. I, took, I got a fine arts degree in music from York University in Toronto. And just as on a whim kind of, I chose one of my courses within the fine arts department to be a painting class. And they told me that anyone could take the class. It was supposedly to start from the beginning of painting. And I got into the class and and was really excited and soon discovered that everybody in that class was a visual arts student who knew how to paint. (laughs) And I was way behind and really bad at it. It wasn't imposter syndrome. It was imposter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I had a great teacher and, and had a lot of time to practice that year. So I really did learn how to paint. It's something you can learn how to do. And I learned it in university and then put away my paints. We learned an acrylic in university and thought, you know, that was cool. I'll probably never do that again. And then when I started touring as fairly significantly, which was about five or six years ago, I found myself in these places that I had never been in before and seeing beautiful scenery. I started touring mostly in Canada and Canada's extremely beautiful. I was taking all these photos and I just wanted to share them with people and at the same time, I wanted to do something that would that would um, 
augment my merchandise table because, you know, I just Roger. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting there. And I thought, I wonder if I still know how to paint. And in university, they used to make us paint really huge so that they could see all the mistakes. But now that I could do whatever I wanted, I was really interested in painting small. So I got these little tiny, almost a little bit bigger than a postcard size canvases okay. and still with acrylic paints. And and I would take photos and paint from the photos. So I, once I got back home from the tour and I had all these photos, I would paint from that. And they were about the same size as the photo. Yeah, only a little bit bigger. Right, yeah. And um, and people – I was just doing it for fun, but people wanted to buy them, hmm. which blew my mind. And so I was like, oh, OK. And so as I would make them, I would just do whatever I wanted to do and they would all be different. And I would have them there next to my CDs at my merch table and people just went crazy for these paintings. Hmm. And now I've been doing that for about five or six years. So I got better and better and they've gotten a lot better. But I still paint usually that size because I like – I like how fast it goes mm-hmm. and I like that I can sell them to people at a fairly reasonable price and I can transport them yeah. on tours. Yeah. And they're unique. There's something that somebody can take away from that is yeah. a one-of-a-kind thing. Yeah. Know, so, is rare. So days. I really only do landscapes and fairly literal landscapes. And then just uh, when I put up my last record, I tried doing a little bit of a bigger canvas and an abstract painting. So the cover of my most recent record is my painting as well. Hmm. Do you have any uh, TV theme songs committed to memory that you could sing for us? Um, I mean, there's the obvious one. <laughs> no, I don't know which one that is. I'll be there for you when, when the rain, rain starts, starts to fall. fall. I'll be there for you because I've been, been there, there before. before. <laughs> <laughs> That's the second time, right? Is that second, Richard? I don't Richard? know if anyone's done Friends before. <laughs> uh, oh, wait, no, you're right. Oh. What's the most popular one you get on the show? Uh, Beverly Hillbillies Beverly comes up twice. quite. Oh, see, that's like before my time, I think. I didn't watch Beverly Fair. Hillbillies. Oh, no. That, well done. Gilligan's most people, Most people try to get away. Get, like, well, no. You're just like, here we go. <laughs> um, uh, TV, um, uh, Broadway musicals or movie musicals? Uh, is that something that you like, that you've watched a lot of, that you are a fan of? When I was younger, I was uh, because I one of one of my early performances was as a Munchkin in The Wizard of Oz when I was probably about twelve, and that was again just kind of a fluke. But I loved the experience of being on stage, and I loved the experience of being part of the cast mm-hmm. and just that whole thing. So that I think that made me think that I liked musicals, and I auditioned for some other ones, and sometimes I'd get them, and sometimes I wouldn't. Um, but I never became one of those people who really loved musicals. Um, I really appreciate them. Like, I still really love Rent, which I think is probably just who I am and the lifestyle that I have. is very <laughs> similar to Rent. And uh, some two good friends of mine in Toronto are the creators of Come From Away. I don't know if you guys know that musical down here. Oh, my hmm. goodness. You're going to know it soon. It's on Broadway. Um, I just um, turned my daughter onto it. She's huge into musicals. It's They wrote a musical about uh, what happened on September the 11th with all the planes having to land in Gander, Newfoundland. Hmm. And I know that sounds like a weird premise for a musical, but it is They made one about a treasury genius. secretary that took over the world. So and there's nothing weird anymore. It's incredible. It's taken over everything. And the music is really based in Newfoundland folk music, which wow. is so cool. And, and yeah, so I would, I would highly recommend that musical. Okay. Okay. Well, we are moving on to song three. What is song three? Um, I think maybe we can listen to it and then I'll talk about okay, it. Okay, this is, uh, well then, uh, uh, I'll still say what it is. Uh, this is Sonny's Dream by Ron Hines from his 1997 album, Face to the Gale. 
So where's that one take you? Oh, so many places. I first heard that song on TV. I was I don't know why I stumbled on this documentary, but there was a documentary about Ron Hines on TV about this tour he was doing in Ireland. And that, I mean, that song is probably his most famous song, which I didn't know at the time. And uh, and I just thought the documentary was really interesting. And then Ron came to play the folk festival in Ottawa, and I was sitting on the lawn at a workshop in the morning, and it was him and a couple other songwriters on the stage. And when he played that song, even though I wasn't really familiar with his music, there was something about the performance that hit me so hard that I felt like a hole had been filled in me. And there's only one other time in my life of seeing live music that I can remember that happening. Um, And it was, I went to see, I went to the Ottawa Blues Fest and I was supposed to see John Lee Hooker, but he was ill. So they had Buddy Guy instead. And it was this terrible day of rain and, and gray. And we were all just kind of soggy at night waiting for him to go on. And he, and Buddy Guy played, it feels like rain Hmm. and saying that. And the whole audience was singing along and, like there's no reason in particular why these things hit me so hard, but those two moments. And so I remember hearing Ron sing that at the festival. And uh, I had seen him play many times since then, and I've become a lot more familiar with his music. And, uh, and the people that he knows out in Newfoundland, because he's he's really um, like their poet laureate. <laughs> and we lost Ron a couple years ago. And it was so such a hard blow to the folk music scene across Canada. He's written some of the best songs to come out of Canada. And he was a really tough guy to be around sometimes. Mm. But when he died, I heard all these stories from young musicians that I knew in St. John's, Newfoundland, who had, like, everybody had run into him at some point. And he'd helped every single one of them at some point. And he'd given them advice about songwriting and about being a musician. And he really cared about them. And uh, and so everybody in Newfoundland knows that song. And I, whenever I go there, I often will bring it out at some point in a show. And I wonder, you know, is that too cheesy? Like, is it like playing Rocky Top in Johnson City, Tennessee or something? Are they going to hate me for this? <laughs> right. Too on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone knows it and everyone sings along. And there's something about a whole bunch of Newfoundlanders singing Sonny's Dream back to you at a show that feels so good. I've played it. I have this gig sometimes where I play music on the train that goes across Canada for the passengers and the overnight trains. And whenever there's a Newfoundlander and they say, oh, do you know any Ron Hines songs? And I play that song and they just like almost cry. <laughs> That's the engine of this show. is the way talking <laughs> about that right there. Um, uh, you know, for us, you know, silly Americans who don't know who he is, I mean, he, he can you just give like a, you know, you've kind of already described him through syntax or from, you know, context, but can you... You know, did everybody in Canada know who he was? Just people in the folk scene? Like, how big was he? In, in I, I wouldn't say that he would have been, like, on popular radio, but certainly anyone in the folk scene would know who he is, and every single person in Newfoundland knows who he is. Gotcha. And probably knows him personally. Hmm. Did you get to know him personally? I mean, it seemed like you were near him. I met him maybe once or twice, but he wouldn't have known, he wouldn't have known my name or anything, and we would have said hello to each other. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, but he... He was an incredible songwriter. I had never heard of him. I Googled him. I saw all the stories, the real long-form stories, and I, I kind of felt what you had just described. So, yeah, interesting. That's the thing. one of the things I learned today. Um, uh, was there a fourth song that you had to cut from your list that was near the top? And you can say no. I mean, 
I mentioned Dar Williams earlier in our conversation, and I think at one point I was thinking of playing The Babysitters here, um, probably because of that show that I mentioned where where I saw her play that that solo show. But that song was uh, it's such a, it's such an odd song, but it's so lovely. And I was also a babysitter when I was young, and uh, and it, I think that song made me want to be the cool babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you recommend any bands that you're really or or solo musicians that you're really into? Well. <laughs> It's going to be a hard question for you. It's usually, you know, are there any bands you're really into that our audience is not going to have heard of? But being Canadian, there's probably a lot of the ones that you know we're just not <laughs> going to have heard of. Um, yeah, my one of my favorite songwriters in the whole country is a guy named John Brooks. I, maybe he's played in Florida, but he's quite big in Texas, interestingly okay. enough. And he lives in Toronto, where I live, and he writes songs that sound very dark sometimes, but they always have this vein of hope that run through them. And he is a real poet. Like, these are incredible songs. And um, and they're so true and real that I think they make people uncomfortable. Hmm. But it's because he's singing the most deepest truest of humanity and that makes people uncomfortable and mm-hmm. I love it. Mm. Is he an inspiration to you? He's definitely inspiration to write better and to write with um, with more honesty and without censoring myself. I'm always trying to do that and to just be a more open artist. Um, are there any albums that you sort of think are perfect in their entirety that you'll always sort of want to listen to in their entirety if having you know if you have the time? You know, I just recently revisited Sarah Harmer's "You Were Here." I don't know if you know Sarah Harmer I down don't. here. Oh my goodness! Richard doesn't either. <laughs> <laughs> She's from Canada. Um, she that record's I think from the nineties. But there's certainly songs on that album that I think are incredible, but the the album from start to finish was just beautiful, and it was nice to revisit that after not listening to it for a long time. Um, If you can perform on stage with any person in front of a great big audience or band, anybody you'd you'd like love to? Oh, man. If I make it alive or dead, how about that? So then you can pick somebody you're not going to offend anybody else. (laughs) I mean, there's so many. I think think – I mean, one of the things I try to do as an adult is please 14-year-old me. And every time I get to do that... My next question is, is what would your 14-year-old <laughs> self think of you? Okay, continue. Um, I'm, I'm constantly just... any Anytime I get to do that where I'm like, man, 14-year-old me would be freaking out right now. I'm like, I am doing... I'm That's literally living my, my next best question. life. Um, so I think to please 14-year-old me, the answer to that would be Sarah McLaughlin. Okay. And to please current me. <laughs> um, uh, are there any songs you'll avoid listening to for either memory association reasons or stylistic reasons? Um, like if you're in the car and it comes on, you're like, yeah, that's gone immediately. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, I am one of those people who can't separate the art from the person. Um, so there have been a lot of stories about artists who have done terrible things to people that are coming to light. I cannot listen to them anymore. Yeah. We kind of got near one during this interview. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Take it away, Richard. So you're hearing this uh, three song story listeners because we forgot to do something that we said we were going to start doing. And so it's new. So we totally forgot. So that's on us. Um, I don't even remember exactly what it is we're going to do. So so I'm looking forward to this. Shauna, Shauna, we're putting you on the spot. Um, Can you name 
three people who you intend to share this podcast with. Like you're going to tell them, you know, hey, I'm on a podcast, listen to it, and also call them out as maybe being on it. Make them targets for us to pursue. Yeah, like who would you throw upon the three-song altar and also you plan on making them listen to it anyway? Okay. Um... Knowing full well that they may be listening to this moment yeah. at some point. Um... Hi, future people. <laughs> oh, you're really putting me on the spot. Absolutely. I have to. I know that I've got some good people that, that you should definitely talk to. We can play the Jeopardy theme song if you want. Just sit back. They're going to make me more nervous. Um, who do I know who? Uh, you know what? I think uh, my friend David Newland, he lives in Coburg, Ontario, would be a great one. And uh, you should talk to my friend Ronnie Hoffman. She's a lawyer in Toronto mm-hmm. uh, and a theater person and a big music fan. Okay, perfect. And oh, you should talk to my friend Orit Shimoni. Uh, who you will probably find in transit because she's always on the road. Okay, you three, you hear that? We're reaching out to you. Okay, well, any final thoughts before we pivot to uh, you know your your parting tune that we're going to have <laughs> you play for us? I don't know. This is a, a really great idea, and I'm glad that you're you're doing this. <laughs> okay, well then you get uh, get your guitar out, and then once you get settled in, I'll read some credits, and then we'll listen to you play some music. And take your time; you don't have to be all like I'm hurrying. Do I wear headphones? Uh, you don't have to if you don't want to. Okay. Okay, as she tunes, I'm going to read the credits. Uh, We make this show in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer. Chris Duff is, is executive producer. Our theme song was made by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. And today we got some, not as much as I hoped, but some production assistance today from Guinevere bortnicker Canary. This is, a, I think I'm going to do a new song. Can I do that? Write yeah, you sure can. You can do a new song. Uh, all right. Uh, this is uh, uh, Shauna Caspi. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. Promise is a promise A sign on the side of the road It's one to believe in Another to grieve in Another one to save my soul And kicking off the dark parts Like birds on these old wool socks I'm afraid that I'll feel lost Going on without them So I'm coming in slowly now that the light has changed The sun's been rising on the other side of the mountain range And I said that I would let go Words that are easily spoken The hour when dreams are broken I'm the only one who ever knows And walking alone now Never been another way Got a mile to burn And another to learn If I'm a sinner I'm just astray And I'm kicking off the dark parts Like mud on these steel-toed boots It's like shaking my insides loose Rattling the heart of me And I'm coming in slowly Now that the light has changed 
The sun's been rising on the other side of the mountain range And I said that I would let go Words that are easily spoken Deals are broken, and I'm the only one who'll ever know. Credit for making the best out of a bitter core. No one's checking up on me. That's when I lose count. How many times I've tried to turn the other way around. Cause I feel like a pretender. Like I'm here just taking up space. Nobody's lover, I'm nobody's mother, taking up a better woman's place. So I'm brushing off the dark parts, like dust on a tall case clock, but it just keeps piling on top. I'm tired of keeping up, so I'm coming in slowly. Now that the light has changed, the sun's been rising on the other side of the mountain range. And I said that I would let go. Words that are easier spoken, yeah, when deals are broken, I'm the only one who'll ever know. Three song stories. So you like We Built This City it's, on Rock and Roll? I don't love it, but oh, I like it. Okay. It's okay. You won't turn it off. Uh, I'm glad Seth's here tonight because The Stroke is one of the worst songs on the face of the planet. Would, so oh, yeah. Oh. Stroke me. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The lyrics are offensive and weird. There's that thing where everybody's yelling stroke. It's just so bad. It's a guy with his jeans too tight.